is a member of WGPRN, WildGamesProductions.com. On this episode of Mirage Arcana, uh, I mean Darker Days, we'll be discussing Vampire the Masquerade sourcebook The Last Supper, how to start chronicles in the New World of Darkness limited games, and we'll show you that while crossover doesn't work well in Old World of Darkness, it's awesome in podcasts. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Darker Days number 21, the first full episode in... I don't know, like half a year or something. Today, I'm joined by, straight from Australia, just cooking shrimp on the barbie, Adrian Stagg of the Mirage Arcana. Hey, Mike, how are you doing? Uh, we're never going to be able to rid ourselves of that phrase, are we? It's just embedded into the American consciousness. That's right. I mean, how many movies have we had that take place in Australia? Just one. Yes. Well, I mean, we exported Crocodile Dundee to you, and we've been paying for it for the past 30 years. You guys did have Crocodile Hunter. Oh, we did. We did. We exported Steve Irwin to you as well. As you can see, all we send to you is our quality stuff. So what's up with you? Oh, well, at the moment, we've been uh, busily sort of making sure that our episodes are coming out on a fairly regular basis. Somebody said to me the other day that for a casual monthly podcast, we're kind of cranking them out at the moment, but we've just got a lot of really good content. And so uh, we've had our first anniversary for Mirage Arcana uh, last month, and so we had the anniversary episodes and also the launch of the new website and the Game Night blog. So things have been rather busy over this side. Very what nice. about yourself, Mike? Well, we just had that interview with Matt McElroy, and that was great. Released a review of Midnight Roads that was uh, Darkly number 14. And, of course, Malleus and I did the two Requiem for a Masquerade episodes. So, Darker Day has been busy. I, myself, have been playing some Vampire the Eternal Struggle lately. It's been a lot of fun. Just had a tournament about two weeks back, and I did terrible. I brought a Giovanni Power Bleed, and... It just didn't work out well. The Giovanni deck is a bit of a, a fine tool. It took me years to get mine to work correctly. But didn't one of the locals from your VTS circle take out one of the, was it the Nationals or the, the State Championships? Uh, yeah, that's Matt Hirsch. We're actually going to cover that in the, uh, the news segment a little bit later. So let's just jump into the news. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so we already mentioned what's been going on with uh, Darker Days. We had four episodes of the Darkling Podcast lately, and of course the premiere episode of Darker Days Video, which was about bookbinding. And we've got a lot of good feedback about that. Well, given the quality of the old binding, I've found a lot of my World of Darkness stuff has held up really, really well. But it's now just getting to that point where we're reaching sort of about 15 years old for most of the classic stuff, and most books really don't hold up too well after that. Are you serious? My copy of Hunter the Reckoning just completely shattered within six months. Really? What, what were you doing with it? I, I was just reading it. I didn't even play any games with Hunter. That's the depressing thing, is when you actually haven't even played with the book, and it still looks as though it's gone through a meat grinder. Yeah, exactly. The bindings just didn't hold up on a lot of those. Some people have good copies. I really didn't have any good luck with those. After having a very long-running relationship with Games Workshop products, trust me, the binding on White Wolf uh, material is absolutely brilliant in comparison. You got me there. So we got The Hidden Grid, which has started up again, uh, Zended, and... Hero from Swing and a Miss have teamed up, and they just released an episode about character creation. Have you checked that out, Adrian? No, I haven't at the moment. I'm a big Shadowrun fan, so I've been talking with Zendead on the forums uh, as I can, but I've got a couple of the episodes downloaded, and that's going to be part of my Christmas listening. Mm, very nice. And, uh, of course, Swing and a Miss has been pretty busy. They just released an actual play for Call of Cthulhu. Uh, they call it one of their graveyard episodes. Apparently, there was some stuff that went wrong as they were playing it, and... They kind of sit down at the end and talk about how it could have been improved. So that could be very interesting for budding storytellers. Very cool. I'll have to give that one a look at as well. Mm -hmm. And of course, Mirage Arcana is so busy. 
We've been um, we've been trying for the monthly episode, as I mentioned before, but with the interviews that we've got and the extra content, we got a really, really good response when we put out calls for questions for the anniversary episode, so that kind of lapped over into, into a second episode. And next year, I can't give any names at the moment, but if we can pull off the discussions that we're having at the moment, there's going to be quite a lot of really good quality interviews coming out, as well as the regular episodes. Sounds awesome. Now, the last thing that's been going on on the WGPRN forums is Samwise 7, one of our posters, actually did a review on YouTube of Vampire the Masquerade 2nd Edition, and I haven't actually read this book, so it was pretty interesting for me as a revised player and storyteller to take a look at this old edition. There's a lot of really eye-opening differences, and I thought it was pretty interesting. Have you checked that out, Adrian? I haven't. Uh, again, work over the last uh, about four to five weeks has just been absolutely insane. And so trying to get any time to listen to podcasts at the moment, as well as producing my own, has been an uphill struggle. So what I'm really hoping to do is I've got most of it downloaded onto my iPad at the moment, and I think I'm just going to have to go and hide somewhere over Christmas and just ingest about 12 to 14 hours of missed episodes. Hey, over the holidays, when you're cleaning all those dishes, just put on a podcast. That's all you gotta do. It's it's very much in the mood of Christmas, spreading that cheer. Oh yeah. So let's move on to White Wolf News, because they've had a lot going on in our downtime. Of course, there was Gen Con. White Wolf announced their new releases for both digital PDFs and print products. And not much else came out of Gen Con, I think, because, of course, they had... The Grand Masquerade coming up. Now, the Grand Masquerade, there's a whole lot going on. They had two very big announcements. They are going ahead with print-on-demand, and you can listen to Darkling number 15 to check out an interview with Matt McElroy, the publisher relations manager for DriveThruRPG. They also announced that the World of Darkness MMO is going to be based off of or rooted in Vampire the Masquerade. Uh, What do you think about that, Adrian? Well... What I'm finding rather interesting is that there's this resurgence this year that we've seen from White Wolf with a really big focus on the old world of darkness. And uh, I'm really enjoying it. I'm thinking that the fact that we've got these laws of books coming back in the the print-on-demand. We're seeing the translation document that's just come out. The MMO is going to be in Vampire the Masquerade. I'm really enjoying it as an old World of Darkness player, and I think that it's quite a unique perspective from White Wolf because a lot of the other companies that you look at, as soon as they put out a new edition or a reimagined version of a game, that's it. They wash their hands, they move on, their focus on their new product. Whereas White Wolf, I think, is really taking leaps and bounds in terms of community building because they're being very inclusive. They're saying, sure, we're putting out the new World of Darkness products, but we're also going to give the old World of Darkness guys something as well to engage with the community. So I think it's it's really clever, and it shows that they're very, very focused on their customers as well. I definitely agree. But uh, something that happened between Gen Con and the Grand Masquerade, uh, rather sad news, is that Vampire the Eternal Struggle, the Vampire the Masquerade card game, was cancelled. And that's a, that's a rather nasty blow. Uh, that was sort of the last bastion of full continued support for the old World of Darkness, because at no stage, of course, did they ever upgrade Vampire the Eternal Struggle to New World of Darkness. Yeah, indeed. It's actually very interesting. At the Grand Masquerade, they made an announcement, and they're kind of cheering on the five fan organizations that are still supporting the uh, Old World of Darkness. Uh, they mentioned, of course, the Camarilla, because they now support Masquerade LARP again, One World by Night, the Guru Nation, uh, White Wolf's demo team, uh, the Wrecking Crew, and they also mentioned the uh, Vampire Elder Kindred Network. And, of course, they just cancelled their game, which is kind of ironic. Well, you've really got to question what they've got left to support, then. Yeah, exactly. But uh, continuing with uh, Vampire the Eternal Struggle, Boston's own Matt Hirsch won the North American Championship. He brought a pretty toolboxy, Malkavian, almost vote deck. I actually played against it the week before he went to the Grand Masquerade, and it was really nasty. So congratulations to Matt. So White Wolf's been putting out quite a few products lately. Adrian, do you want to uh, talk about those? Yeah, um, I've taken a look at quite a few on the list. Uh, the Mage Chronicler's Guide, The World of Darkness Mirrors, Signs of the Moon, 
Hungry Streets, uh, Coyote Falls and the Vampire Translation document. So I only missed a couple of those. And I've got to say that overall, um, White Wolf seems to be taking a very toolbox approach with a lot of these products, especially if you look at the Mage Chronicler's Guide and World of Darkness Mirrors. Really, a lot of the meat of these products is showing you alternate ways that you can run the game or some alternate game mechanics or alternative ideas, really. So if you're a storyteller interested in maybe revitalizing your game or perhaps uh, taking Taking a look at some different ways of running your game, I'd really recommend these. And the two SAS modules that I looked at, the Hungry Streets and Coyote Falls, Hungry Streets is okay. Uh, it needs a bit of work, um, and I'd be happy to do a, a longer review on that on the forums. Uh, Coyote Falls, however, I can't say enough good things about. Uh, it's designed for uh, Werewolf the Forsaken, but I'll actually be retconning it so that I can use it for my Mage the Ascension game. Really? That sounds very cool. Well, it's it's got a lot of really, really good ideas that, whilst they work best in a werewolf setting, it is really, really easy to transfer them to any other game where spirits have got any sort of presence. Uh, Adrian, I think you brought up a really good point about some of these products. The bigger books, White Wolf is moving towards uh, making those more toolboxy, having more rules. And for the more specific ideas... You're going to get a smaller product, maybe an SAS, maybe maybe a short supplement like uh, Invite Only about social gatherings for Vampire the Requiem. And that's a very good approach, I think, because if you remember back to the uh, the late days of the Old World of Darkness, we were getting big books about very minor tangential topics like uh, Blood Dimmed Tides, which is just about horror at sea, or Chaining the Beast, which is all about the different paths of morality that the Sabbat use. And it did seem when they were nearing their end of the uh, the print run for the Old World of Darkness, it did look with a couple of products as though they were stretching a little bit for content. The other thing that I quite liked with the Mage Chronicler's Guide is that they brought in the old essay format that they used to use with the second edition vampire books in that they got all of the developers to write an essay about a particular aspect of storytelling and also littered throughout the entire book are these little sidebars where the developers and the writers have written a bit about how they've used the rules presented in their own games. That's outstanding. White Wolf also experimented with that in the New World of Darkness supplement Reliquary. They had a bunch of essays in that one. And I think that that sort of material I get an awful lot more out of rather than just looking at a book full of game mechanics. Yep, definitely. Now, the last bit of news is actually uh, pretty exciting because this is fresh off the press. Um, White Wolf has just announced the Grand Masquerade 2011, and it's going to be in New Orleans. So, Grand Masquerade, uh, I'm not as familiar as I should be with this event. What exactly is it? Well, the Grand Masquerade kind of uh, came out of the the Camarilla LARP major event in the United States, but they decided to expand it to all the World of Darkness. There's the Tabletop. This past year, they had the North American Championship for Vampire the Eternal Struggle, and uh, they also make a lot of big announcements. For example, they were mentioning the massive multiplayer game and what it's going to be based off of. They're also making an announcement about their print-on-demand. So it's very, very player-based, and uh, all of White Wolf gets together. It's not like your typical convention with all the different vendors or anything. It's it's all about White Wolf. That's pretty cool because I remember having gone to a number of the Camarilla conclaves, uh, which was the old format. If you weren't a LARPer, there wasn't an awful lot for you to do. Well, LARPing was definitely a big deal at this convention. There was actually three different LARP rooms, which were professionally done. They had a, they had a changing room, they had a vampire room, and they also had a werewolf one. So there's a lot for that. But there's also tables for... Uh, tabletop playing, and there is a uh, room sectioned off for the North American Championship for VTest. So there's quite a bit going on. And there was also panels. I, I hear they premiered their new website format for the White Wolf website, so that's pretty exciting. Cool. Okay, all, all of these look as though they're gearing up for a really big year for 2011. Yep, definitely. All right, so with that, take a break, and we'll move on to the original World of Darkness. Classic World of Darkness.
Alright, we're going to discuss the Vampire the Masquerade supplement, The Last Supper. Adrian, it seems like you really like this book. It would be probably my favorite non-changeling book. Outstanding. So could you tell our listeners a little bit about this supplement? Okay, so The Last Supper was one of the first black dog imprint materials that were put out and uh, the black dog range of course was meant to be able to explore more mature themes in role playing now the good thing was that rather than take the approach that I've seen with a lot of other game companies where mature just means that we're allowed to swear have excessive violence and some nudity uh, White Wolf instead took the approach that they would give you the opportunity to discuss and to explore a lot of ideas and concepts which are not necessarily presented in your normal game. So The Last Supper, for example, has got a lot of discussion on religion, for example, because it is set in the Middle Ages, in the Dark Ages, sorry, and the way that it is presented is very open-ended. So you can work your way through the module at your own pace, and provided that a storyteller has done a lot of preparation, you'll actually get an awful lot out of the game because you can put all your own little individual marks throughout the way throughout the module. Now, the way that it basically begins is that at the very beginning of the module, all of the PCs are human, and they have been given an invitation... Uh, which essentially is the honour of your company is most respectfully requested for a late dinner at the home of Lord Claudius Giovanni, Earl of Stavlachia, on the fourth day of April in the year of our Lord, 1444. And they have obviously accepted this invitation and they gather at a local inn waiting for the Giovanni stewards and the Giovanni staff to come and collect them and they have the opportunity to have a chat with the other people who are going along. Now... Even though it uses a lot of the tropes of role-playing games in that you're all meeting in a tavern, obviously, and that you're gearing up to go through that rite of passage, you're going to become one of the supernatural creatures... It is presented in quite a good manner. Uh, they had an opportunity here to make it something a bit fresh, to give you a chance to actually engage in some role-playing before this and to get a bit of a feeling for whether or not you wanted to go through with the premise of the module rather than a lot of the other ways that I've seen these presented where you have very much a railroaded linear plot that you're going point A, point B, point C and the players really they're just marking time until they're embraced or go through their first change or go through their chrysalis. So I think that what they did was a very good job in giving players choice. How did you feel about that beginning segment? I really liked the end. Uh, there's quite a few interesting hooks that you can play with but they're not exactly mandatory to the story. However, if your players do pick up on some of these things, you can really carry those ideas or these characters further on to the story. I think that's a real strength. Now, I do have a question about this. With regard to character creation, since the players start off playing humans, uh, how exactly do you go about picking their clan? Well, there's two ways of going about this. If you wanted to really play on the fact that the vampirism in this game is forced upon the humans. They really don't get an awful lot of choice because later on, and we'll cover this when we look at the, the first meeting, the vampires who are their potential sires essentially just pick them out and say, well, I'll have that one, thank you. And there is no choice. So if you really wanted to hammer that home, and I think that that could present some really good role-playing opportunities, you simply say, make up your mortal characters, bring them along, and you'll find out as a big surprise which clan you are at the end of the night. I think that could lead to some really good role-playing opportunities, because if you have a player who is dead mad keen on Gangrel, and that's all they play, but they were actually embraced by Tsumitsu, then how do they come to terms with the fact that when they're interacting with the Gangrel, they say, well, really, the way that I am fits a lot more with interacting with your clan, but I'm a Tsumitsu, I'm, I'm a monster, uh, I'm something completely different. The other approach that you can take is just have a chat with your players beforehand and say, well, what clans are everybody thinking? And then you just engineer that so that they are automatically picked by the, the right sire. 
Hmm. Which way would you go with this? Uh, I was considering both of them, but there's also a third possibility, which is a bit of a hybrid. You definitely want to have players happy with their characters, but there is definitely a strength and a lot of role-playing opportunity in having the characters stuck with their clan, having it pushed upon them. So what I was considering is, while a player may have the clan forced on them, you might let them pick their disciplines. They could pick the Gangrel discipline spread if that's how they like to play the game, but they might actually become as Amitsi instead. Yeah, that could also work. As you were as you were talking, I was sort of thinking as well when you mentioned hybrids that um, you're talking about being able to select your disciplines that, that you essentially want for your character. But what do you think of the idea of saying to each player around the table, I want you to pick two or three clans that you would consider for a character and all I'm going to do is I'll select one of those three. That could also work very well. If you look at the new... Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, that's how character creation works. You draw three applicable careers and pick one of them. Oh, okay. Is it randomized at all? Yeah, you, like, randomly draw. It's pretty cool. Okay, so, I mean, that sort of an approach would work quite well because what you're then getting is the best of both worlds. The storyteller's still able to have a big reveal and a bit of a surprise, but it's a controlled surprise. Yeah, exactly. So, Adrian, let's go back and talk about the end a little bit, the beginning of the story, because there's a lot of cool stuff going on there. So your players begin as humans, and as such, they start just interacting with humans. It's a very basic setting for them, but there's still a lot of role-playing opportunities. So when they start with this inn, they're at a table, and there's a couple people in the inn just drinking or what have you. And one NPC that really struck me as I was reading is Paul the Soldier. Now, Paul is a crippled soldier who's pretty much just in the end. Uh, he is approachable. He'll talk to the characters. And he wants to begin working as a guard for the Lord Giovanni, who they're actually going to be visiting. And the module gives you a couple of ideas for how to play with this. And Paul could actually become a, an ally of the characters later on, or he might become an antagonist. But one idea which I came up with, which could be very interesting for the grander grander story of the Giovanni Chronicles is if Paul follows the characters, becomes a an ally, a friend of them, and he actually is embraced by the Cappadocians. Now, this, this actually comes from a, uh, a character template from the clan book Cappadocians. There's one, he's like a highwayman, and he doesn't have any necromancy. He's just a, a vampire with fortitude, and that struck me as very interesting and very unique among the Cappadocians, since most of them are, are actually scholars. So, if the characters were to befriend Paul, he becomes a Cappadocian, he will be a, an excellent foil to them. He may come up in the story later on as the, the characters interact more with the Cappadocian clan and their struggle with the Giovanni. And longer term, if you're deciding that this is going to be a springboard to a very long campaign, which is how I used Last Supper, we started playing in 1444 and played all the way through to the Gehenna supplement. So the the players were, were, were dealing with characters at that stage who were quite powerful. If Paul was to become a Cappadocian, then there's an opportunity for him later on to become part of that meta plot where we then see the Harbingers of Skulls come back in the modern nights. Yeah, well, my idea with Paul is that since he... If I use this character template, he won't have any necromancy. So as the Giovanni rise in power, and as we all know, they defeat the Cappadocians and overtake them, he's going to die. And the players know that. So if they're attached mm. to this character, it's going to be very, very poignant in the uh, struggle that is to come. Very easy to put that sense of, of tragedy into the game with a character like this. You got it. So Adrian, you wanted to talk a bit about some of the, uh, the Giovanni that they run into. Yes, as well as the, the people that they deal with in the inn. The first person that I thought was also very interesting once the Giovanni show up is Brother Clement. And he's a wandering priest who at the 
the arrival of the Giovanni, he goes into a bit of a frenzy and tries to talk all of the characters out of going to the dinner and says that Lord Giovanni is, is the spawn of the devil and that bad things happen up in his manse and that there's no possible way that they should go up there. And uh, whilst he's ranting, some of the Giovanni men actually grab a hold of him give him a, a bit of a thrashing and then start to drag him out the back of the inn. And that's a really interesting scene because I've seen players react very, very differently to that. Some of them have simply said, well, no, he doesn't know what he's talking about and out of sight, out of mind. As soon as he's out of the scene, they don't think about him again. I've got others who step up and say, well, that's, that's no way to be treating a man of the cloth or even, as an extension, one of our fellow men you know, you, you are taking this a bit too far and they try to intercede on Brother Clement's behalf. Now, if that actually happens, the character runs a very strong risk of losing their invitation to the Giovanni household. They're essentially told, leave this business to Lord Giovanni, leave this troublesome priest to us, otherwise you'll be walking home. And at that point, it's quite a good decision for them as to whether or not they're going to simply say, well, I'm going to follow this through and just ignore the priest, or no, wait a minute, I'm going to stand up and do what's right here. How have you seen this run? I have not actually run The Last Supper. I've only owned it for a couple of months. But Brother Clements, I, I'm not sure exactly how I portray him. I, as it stands in the book... I think it's pretty good. It's very poignant to the characters and gives them a, a good moral decision right off the bat. He is he is portrayed as a bit of a, a wild-eyed loony, so I have a tendency to tone him down a little bit, make him a little bit more reasonable, and if you do that and he's making reasonable requests and speaking logically, a lot of the players will then say, well, you know, he's not raving loony number three and we're just going to ignore him. He becomes a much more realistic character to them. The other person that I really do enjoy player reactions to is Lofar, and he is a steward of the Giovanni. Um, he has been identified as having a special gift where he can smell the quality of a mortal's blood. And so when the players arrive, they do find out that it was Lothar who has actually selected all of them. And he selected them based on the quality or the aroma or some other intangible quality to do with their blood. And as each one of them meets him, he does either sniff their hand or he holds their hand for just a little bit too long and you can pick a random character as well and uh, there are times where the smell of the blood does overwhelm him and he will actually even lick one of the uh, the character's hands in anticipation. So he's got that aura of extreme creepiness to him. What Lothar does is he provides a really good introduction to the Giovanni household because what we see later on in the module is a lot more creepy and a lot more disturbing than this guy. But he's, he's a good gateway to this type of behaviour that they'll be interacting with later on. Okay, was there anything else that you wanted to mention with regards to these NPCs or are you happy to move on to the actual plot of the story? I had one comment about Lothar and it's something... A little weird that they mentioned in the source book. Uh, they actually recommend that you might even want to physically grab a player's hand and lick it. <laughs> and that's pretty strange. Um, I, I think that there are certain boundaries between storyteller and player, and that crosses all of them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even if you look at live-action roleplay rules, rule number one is no touching. But at least so. in the Camarilla, you, you ask for permission. So, for example, if I was going to shake your hand at a Camarilla event, I'd put out my hand, and if you, if you took it, then that's tacit consent. Uh, I really don't want to be at a LARP and turn to someone I don't know and say, do you mind if I lick your hand? <laughs> so <laughs> that that takes the it. creepiness to a whole new level. Oh, yeah, definitely. 
So from there, what we find is that they're taken up to the Giovanni Mance, and it's here that the story really kicks off, because at the Mance you meet all of the potential sires, and there's a little story, a vignette designed for each one of the sires, and it's a one-on-one chance for the sires to really get inside the head of the PC, and to have a bit of fun with them, and to see whether or not this person is actually what they've been promised. And so the vignettes vary wildly in the content and the types of things that are presented to the characters. Now, in this scene here, you mentioned, Mike, that um, that they might play up the clan stereotypes a little bit too much. Do you want to expand on that? I definitely do. The one that I thought was most into the stereotype was the, the Bruja. Uh, sire, he really just wants to talk to his meal, really, and ask them about how how passionate they are, talk about politics uh, and that kind of stuff. And if they aren't passionate enough, they don't excite them, they get violent. And that's just Brujah right there. It's their complete stereotype. Didn't really strike me as something unique and interesting. Sometimes it's pretty good. The Gangrel one is probably my favorite. Do you want to expand on that one and give people a, a bit of an overview of what happens? Well, I don't have notes right in front of me, but if I remember correctly, the uh, Gangrel one wants to see how wild the child is and gets the, the vigor of the hunt in them and starts chasing them across the rooftops, which is very frightening for the character, I'm sure. I mean, it really drags them out of their comfort zone. I mean, she begins, I think, by saying something like the fact that she feels rather cramped inside the manse, and uh, and her invitation is to say to the the character, how about if we go outside and howl at the moon? And that sort of behaviour is probably not what they're going to come to expect. I mean... To me, I'm thinking that if you went down the road of saying to the players, what do you want to play? And this person has said, well, I'm going to play a gangrel. They're probably going to create their character so that it aligns with a lot of their gangrel uh, imagery and stereotypes. So there is a strong possibility that her behaviour is not going to be overly confronting to that sort of character. So in that, when I look through these vignettes, I'm leaning more towards less player choice. There's another very good one, the uh, follower of set sire is uh, very, very interesting. Yeah, definitely. Um, it really plays to the whole corruption theme of the clan, and basically the character is given a couple of choices. The first one, they're asked whether or not they would, uh, they would bludgeon a cat to death, and uh, if they say no, well, she mocks them, and it doesn't really go too much further. But if they do agree, then she starts to up the ante just to see exactly where the PC is going to draw the line for this type of behaviour. Very strange... Very interesting, very creepy. Yes, it is, it is. And I've seen a lot of people when I've run this module who were interested in playing Setites who, when they're confronted with her tactics, find them quite distasteful and they shy away from them quite a bit. And when I say to them, well, realistically, this is the kind of road that your character could take once it becomes a vampire is to take on that role of the corrupter uh, and it gives them quite a big insight to the clan and when you notice that some of the characters and well some of the players then sort of shy away from that and say oh well I didn't actually know that much about the clan you can see that they start to rethink uh, their initial decision to play that clan and one thing I definitely want to mention about these vignettes is that this is an excellent way to gauge the interest in particular characters, uh, particular NPCs, and see if they'll make a good antagonist in the future. If the uh, not only the player who's interacting, but the players watching this react very strongly to one of these sires, that's definitely someone to keep around and perhaps use later on in the story. Definitely, definitely. Because some of them... There's 13 sires presented, so the chances of you being able to forge a really solid connection with all of them is pretty slim. So I would highly recommend that as you're going through this module, any of the the little touchstones that you manage to create, put those down as things that you can expand in later modules. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, from there, basically, uh, the 
order is given that dinner is served and when they arrive there they find out that as of course no surprise to absolutely anybody they're the main course on the menu however at this stage things go a little bit awry in that the founders and this is a group of elders who eventually they're going to be the founders of the Camarilla, uh, led by Hardstat the Elder, assault the Giovanni Mant and rescue the player characters. But in doing so, the Giovanni orders that all of them are embraced and left behind whilst the conspiracy manages to elicit its own escape at this point. So they're brought into the custody of the founders and dragged off back to Hardstat's castle where they're interrogated to find out exactly what their allegiance and what their connection with this conspiracy actually is. Now, this works quite well in the fact that you can separate the players. You can actually move them to separate rooms if you've got enough space in your house to do so. And you can question them one-on-one and If you've watched a lot of police drama, these are the sorts of techniques that you can bring into play in this type of an environment. Conversely, if you don't have the space, you can always just bounce questions off of random individuals and even throw some questions in there that have absolutely nothing to do with the plot, just to put them on the back foot and really put forward that idea that the elders in this case here are definitely the ones with all the power and all the control what do you think about this scene it's very interesting and i can really get behind where they're going with the module and the adventure at this point because they really alienate the characters they're being questioned they're being interrogated by the founders who are ostensibly the good guys and the other faction that they can turn to at this point is perhaps go back to the conspirators who wanted to eat them for dinner. It does put them into quite a quandary because you say that the founders are ostensibly the good guys, but their behaviour at that point doesn't necessarily say we're here to help you out. These guys have just been, the PCs have just been traumatised in the case of their embrace. They've been left to die by their potential sires. They're bordering on frenzy. Their mental state is probably not brilliant. And then you have this group of individuals who show up, shackle them, take them off to a castle out in the middle of nowhere, chain them to a wall and start firing questions at them. So it's a really hard sell at this point to say that Hardstat and his group are actually the good guys. One thing I do want to know about the Founders, though, is that you can get an interesting uh, crossover with the Transylvania Chronicles, because a lot of these characters are going to show up in, I believe, Transylvania Chronicles 2. You can eventually combine those two, at least in part, if you want to make a, a more epic story, more epic chronicle. And that's actually what I did with my chronicle, was we started off with Last Supper, and I actually used all four Transylvania chronicles, as well as the three, three out of the four of the Giovanni chronicles, and then we fleshed it out with a lot more homegrown material in between. So the convergence between those two storylines is quite strong. It takes a little bit of work on the part of the storyteller, but you'll literally get years worth of plot out of them. So... I think that pretty much covers the basics, the introduction of the story. I don't think we want to go into too much detail on the secrets and surprises that come up later on the Last Supper. But one thing I definitely want to talk about is Cappadocius. Yes, he's a brilliantly written character in this book because he very much, and this was a point that I remember that you raised earlier on, he doesn't really behave in the way that you would expect an antediluvian to. And my question for you, Mike, is that how do you expect an antediluvian to behave? Well, let me just give a little background to this, because the first time I read The Last Supper, I've actually read it twice, I did not like the adventure because of Cappadocius. Why is that? Because he doesn't act the way I would expect him to. And to give some more detail, Adrian, on the WGPRN forums, you were talking about how great an adventure is, so I went back, I read it, and I started to understand him a bit more. Now, when you think of an antediluvian, when you think of, like, perhaps the uh, Gehenna source book that was released in the uh, last days of Vampire the Masquerade, they're very powerful, they're very smart, they're very cunning, and they're dicks. I mean, there's no other way you can say it. The way that Cappadocius is portrayed is he's very serene, he is very focused, 
and he speaks to the characters almost as an equal, I'd say. He he gladly gives them information and tries to push them along on their path. He is written as a very approachable character, and there's that aura of serenity and calm about him that when the PCs first meet him and he does identify himself, those players who know enough about the meta plot will immediately be saying in the back of their head, oh, no, this guy is an antediluvian. I've really got to watch myself here because you know, this guy has got absolutely godlike powers and will destroy me in a second. But the longer that you actually talk to Cappadocius, the less likely that he's going to wield his powers in a blatant fashion becomes. He speaks to them, as you said, very much like equals. He's very interested in what they have to say, despite the fact that they've only been embraced by that stage for a couple of weeks at the absolute most. And he he just exudes that sort of, not friendliness, but certainly an approachability where they feel that they can speak to him about almost anything. And it was a really nice divergence away from putting in a character that could just alter the entire world at a whim. And another thing I noticed when I was reading this, and it it turned me off originally, is that Cappadocius speaks a lot about God. He also speaks about Jesus. There's a lot of religious undertones with this. And I thought that was a little strange because he's an antediluvian from long before the rise of Christianity. Now, one thing I want to mention, which made me respect the portrayal of Cappadocius much more, is that one of the purported founders of the Bali, one of the possibilities, is Cappadocius. Now, a lot of the times people say that it was probably Salat, the founder of the Salubri clan, but as I was reading this, the way I thought it might have played out, and what gave that uh, theory a lot more backing, is that perhaps Cappadocius is a an antediluvian who sank to the lowest of the low. He was just embracing these infernalists just for a laugh. And then he noticed the error in his ways. And he became a, I guess, an antediluvian that found God, if you will. He found religion. And that completely changed him, and he started to walk this higher road that you see in The Last Supper. I do like that portrayal of him because it shows that even the antediluvians aren't immune to change, that they are capable of character growth, and that when you think of the antediluvians, um, a lot of people would think of them as being very, very fixed in time. They're this snapshot in time that has never changed, has never altered, and essentially the antediluvians come across a lot of times as museum pieces, whereas Cappadocia I think that if you did take that idea that he was, he did have sort of that wild youth, if you want to portray it in that sort of fashion, and now that he's just that bit older, he's now settled down and he's become a lot more grounded in his own philosophy, I think that that adds a number of layers to him, which unfortunately you don't get the time to explore in this module. No, and sadly you don't, but we're not going to tell you what happens. No, 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 no spoilers here. So, Adrian, I think that's all we really got to say about this. Do you have any other comments? My final thoughts would be to definitely pick this up and give it a go. You don't have to use it for Dark Ages Vampire, and I think that we're going to touch on some ideas in our New World of Darkness segment for how you could port it in through other games. But realistically, it is... a a module that is designed around ideas rather than just a linear plot. So I think it's that adaptability that makes it as strong a product as it is. Very cool. All right, Adrian, I think we're going to take a quick break and then we'll get back to talk about the new world of darkness. All right. Excellent. World of darkness 2.0. For the New World of Darkness segment, I thought we would discuss the four limited smaller game lines and talk about how we could use the ideas from The Last Supper to create a very interesting first story to your chronicle. And I think that what we will do for this segment is, rather than focusing on Vampire, Werewolf, and Mage, the big three that get an awful lot of love, uh, when we put this episode together, we thought that it would be a good idea maybe to focus on four of the smaller game lines. So are we ready to go? Oh, yeah, definitely. 
So I wanted to start off talking about Promethean created because that was the first limited line. And the ideas of isolationism and a kidnapping are a great way to start off Promethean. One approach I was considering is that you could take a, uh, if you have a mature and, and brave group, uh, you could have them wake up in a cave, chained up, uh, locked up there by a motley of Prometheans. And Adrian, you actually gave me this idea because you were explaining it because uh, it's in the Rites of Passage story for Werewolf the Apocalypse. Do you want to explain that a little bit? Well, with Rites of, Rite of Passage, one of the ways that I started off that game was having each one of the potential werewolves uh, kidnapped by the Sept of the Little White Feet in New York. And when they were kidnapped, they were all dragged off to this garden shed in an unused portion of the park, or at least a, a portion where the average human wouldn't come across them. And the first game was centred around some one-on-one -on -one storytelling as each one of them was kidnapped in a particularly appropriate fashion, and then they would all wake up in this shed altogether. So it was an idea that you isolated them away from society, you locked them away somewhere where they didn't know where they were, they didn't know what was going on, and on top of that they were in a room full of people that they didn't know previously. So really what it does is gives you an opportunity then to really play up the, the creepiness of the transformation as well. Running with that idea, what I was thinking you could do, you can take a, a bit of a wild departure from that. You still have the isolation. You still have all the characters waking up with people they don't know and just having to run with it. Now, these Prometheans that captured them, they, they might be Sentamani, the flux path of Prometheans, or they might just be wildly and uh, insanely misguided. But what will happen is each of these Prometheans will meet with the characters and explain that they will be the characters will be murdered and remade in the Promethean's image. So uh, you can use the idea of the Last Supper's vignettes to portray uh, the, the personal and horrifying murder of each of these characters. And this could vary from the, the brutal rending assault of uh, one of the wretcheds or Frankensteins, or the, uh, the Osirian's cool, calculated drain of the character's blood into a pool of water. And when the characters awaken, they're going to be all alone. They're going to be sickened by what they've become and sickened by the philosophies of their creators. And what I kind of want to say about this is you might want to be careful about portraying maybe a brutal murder, especially if you've got... Uh, players that you're not too familiar with. And I'd recommend that you remember that in horror, a lot of times, less is more. It may be better to describe a character being dragged into a torture chamber and then cut to black, as opposed to a vivid description of uh, his evisceration. And that way, you don't have to do as much research. Completely agree. Um, the other way that you could approach this is one thing that I've seen very popular in um, a lot of television shows and movies is starting off at the end of the scene. So you can have a scene where you're describing the PC waking up on the slab or on the floor and realising that they are something horrifying and just deal with that as a very short scene. And then as scene two, you can say, well, 48 hours, ago and run their their murder as a series of flashbacks and that way at least they know that they're a monster they're not entirely quite sure how they got there and you can use those little flashbacks as the hook to reel the pc in and engage them with the game because they want to find out more that's an outstanding way to portray it uh, any other comments on promethean created I'm not that familiar with Promethean, so I'm actually going to leave it there because I, I think what you've put together there is a really good start to a game. Next game, of course, is Changing the Lost. And The Last Supper, the themes of the book is about characters losing control of their lives and being dragged into this alien society, which is the exact themes of Changeling. So it's a perfect match. So to kind of set the scene, uh, one way you might want to uh, convert over the Last Supper is uh, have a Midsummer Night's Court uh, ball or something, and the characters are invited to this sophisticated party. It's a great time. They have uh, food and drink, and it's like ambrosia. Each player meets with their sponsor who brought them to the party in the uh, hedge garden outside the hotel, and they, they walk and talk. These sponsors will be somewhat unsettling and foreign, but they seem to have like genuine interest in the characters. 
so that makes them comfortable. And as they're taken deeper into the maze, little do they know that they're brought into a, a trod, which takes, takes them to Arcadia, and then they arrive to a new party, which has very elaborately dressed servants who, uh, little do they know, are, are changelings, which is what they're going to become. And what's really important to play up in this is the, uh, the wonder and beauty that the players see. And the players and characters should really want to stay with the Fae. Now, where this gets turned on its head is when a, a cadre from the summer court will charge out of the hedge and crash the party. And they're going to grab as many changelings as possible and break them free. And this is going to include the player characters. So the players will be dragged, or the, sorry, the characters will be dragged through the hedge forcibly. And it's going to tear at their bodies and souls as their rescuers, if you will, flee back to the mortal world. And I think this idea is really cool because it, it takes Changeling the Lost and turns it on its head. Since the players will want to go back to the Fae rather than stay hidden from them. And who knows what will happen. Will they stay with the, the emotionally shattered society of the Lost? Or will they become turncoats and privateers working for the Fae? I like this idea because what it does is it turns the ideas from The Last Supper on their head. With The Last Supper, you're expected to believe that the natural progression of things is that the conspiracy of Isaac, who have stolen the characters away and who have embraced them, leave them for the founders, and then the founders take them off. And the founders are... You've, you've got to go to great lengths to say, these are the good guys. Essentially, the story flows better if the player characters want to help the founders. I think that the real strength to this Changeling the Lost idea is that we portray what are essentially seen as the bad guys as the good guys. And it's a, a really nice uh, emotional disturbance for the characters in that they want to return back to their kidnappers rather than staying with the people who have supposedly liberated them. And I think that if you've got a group of players who rather than say, well, this is the way the game is meant to be run, so we're just going to go with the summer court, if you've got a group of players who say, well, I want to actually explore this a bit deeper, you could get some really good stories in the future of these uh, characters then wanting to try and maybe kidnap some of their friends and take them back through the hedge back to their fairy captors. Because if you portray this place as a wonderful place where there's no sickness, no death, that there's all the food that you could possibly want, that it is this marvellous, wondrous place, why would anybody in their right mind want to live in the real world? And... One thing that I think is a great strength to this idea and this story introduction is that it really expands Changeling the Lost. Because if you look at the core book of Changeling, it's actually rather limited in how you can portray your characters, at least like for their prelude. I believe it was Sandtrigger from, from Shadow and Essence and uh, all the other White Wolf forums who told me that Changeling the Lost is, you know, 101 ways to play a rape victim. Because your, your character starts off broken and violated, typically. And this way, they didn't have that experience exactly. There's still changelings. They still got dragged out of the hedge, but they actually want to go back. And even if you can then, uh, to play up that feeling of isolation as well, if you can find a way to separate them and uh, from the summer court who have rescued them, maybe they break it off and they run off and try and reconnect with their old lives, they're going to start realising that they bear the marks for having been on the other side of the hedge and they're going to suddenly realise that they don't know exactly how to get back to the Fae who kidnapped them. They're not entirely trusting of the summer court, but they're no longer human and they need help. And so I think that you could really play up the fact there that they don't know where they can get help from and that they are completely and totally emotionally and socially isolated from other human beings. Great idea. Great. So let's move on to Hunter the Vigil. I think some of these ideas can really be applied to a Mortals game as well. So I was thinking that you can have the characters invited to a sweet club party. And just like in The Last Supper, they soon figure out that they're going to be dinner. And I can kind of see this ending two different ways. Either the characters are going to be rescued, like in The Last Supper, or they might need to find their own way to survive. 
So if the characters are rescued, it might be by a local compact. Uh, and this could be a great way to kickstart your chronicle. Um, perhaps the characters are rescued by the Long Knight, and they end up taking heavy losses during the raid. And as a result, they actually get conscripted and forced to join the compact. Now, the characters might eventually leave this hunter organization, but uh, it'll get the game going and get them involved real quick. What do you think of taking that idea for Hunter the Vigil, where you get the um, where you get this group of people burst in and save them? At the very beginning, when you're about to run this game, what would you actually think about not telling the players what game you're going to be running? Just say, we're going to be running a World of Darkness game. You're going to start off as mortals and maybe even subtly lead them astray and tell them that it's going to be a Vampire Requiem Chronicle. And then it takes this very unexpected twist. What do you think about a a small amount of misinformation at the beginning of the game? Well, you definitely don't want your characters to expect Vampire and then get Hunter. Uh, But you could play this uh, very interestingly. Uh, For example, maybe the characters will end up as ghouls and will then be conscripted by... I can't remember the name of the conspiracy. Um, There's one that uses the supernatural biology. But I can't remember the name, no. Well, let's not worry about it. But you you could actually make them ghouls and have them become Vampire Hunters or just Hunters in general which will give you the best of both worlds, really. Yep. Or um, I think it's... Is it the Ashwood Abbey, who are the guys who are into hunting because it feels good and that they're into sensation? That's them, isn't it? Um, you could even have that that this group uh, bursts in and, and takes them away, but because you're now part of a compact that thinks along those lines there are actually possibilities that the characters could then um, go back and find themselves in a very similar situation, but under somewhat more controlled circumstances later on. Yeah, you got it, Adrian. So just to talk about the other idea, you could also have the option of no rescue whatsoever. And this would be really cool when you use the uh, the vignettes, because if anyone's familiar with The Last Supper, they may expect, oh, sweet, we're going to be rescued eventually, because that's the story of The Last Supper. But if there is no rescue, it's going to turn everything on their heads, and they're going to soon figure out that they're going to have to find a way to survive. And in this scenario, the, the characters are going to have to basically stave off the inevitable dinner, or try to escape, or, or maybe even try to kill their captors one by one. And this could make really good material for a one-shot. Because it puts the characters in a closed location and gives them a pretty specific goal, which is survival. You could run this as uh, The Last Supper as Die Hard. That's amazing. That is such <laughs> a cool idea. But you could you could also, if you wanted to limit the amount of help, and if you've got a group that you think maybe might not take the whole initiative themselves and are expecting this rescue, maybe if the captors have made one fatal error in the fact that they have actually captured a hunter from one of the local compacts, and during the course of the night, this one hunter through mingling turns to the players and says, listen, bad things are going to happen when the bad things begin to happen, follow my lead, uh, and essentially conscripts them at that point and says to them, I can get you out of here, but you're going to have to follow everything that I do and maybe use him as a catalyst to get them thinking about how they can save their own lives and whether or not that hunter then gets put into a compromising situation as they're escaping and the players need to make the decision whether or not they leave this guy who's helped them to the tender mercies of these uh, of these vampires or whatever is hosting the party or whether or not they put their own lives on the line, rescue him, and then he becomes sort of a mentor character for them. World of Darkness, Die Hard Edition. Adrian, you're on to something. <laughs> <laughs> and remember, all you've got to do is make little fists with your toes, and everything will work. Yeah, all right. So let's talk about uh, Geist the Sin Eaters a little bit. Now, I'm not too familiar with Geist. I haven't read the book. But one idea that I was coming up with, which kind of plays on the themes of The Last Supper, is to have uh, perhaps the characters are sacrificed by a cult, and it's a ritual sacrifice to uh, give them up to some geists that they worship. Now, the characters' vignettes will be with their geists as they they make the bargain to come back to life. And one way you can reinforce the alien nature of what they become is have the geists order 
each of the characters to kill the cultists. And that would be very interesting to see how they react. I like this idea as well because, again, you're taking a lot of the power away from the players at the very beginning and then sort of thrusting them into the situation and making the best of a bad situation, as it were. I was also thinking that if we take this idea of the cult, and to me, everything is better with cults and secret societies, so we're on a winner to start off with. Mm -hmm. What we can do from this situation is maybe bring in some of the prophecy elements from The Last Supper, and we only touched on these very lightly when we did the overview because we didn't want to wreck too much of the plot for people. But perhaps there is a reason as to why this number of geists have been brought into this place at this time. And maybe the cult are trying to fulfill a prophecy which is the common thread through a lot of the crews in the area. Because in Geist, the cosmology is essentially whatever you come up with. There is no central idea of how geists came to be or there's none of this framework that you get with vampire and wealth. And so crews generally come up with their own philosophies and it's a mixing pot of everything. But what if you then found out later on that a number of the crews have got a very similar story about a particular group of geists who will return at a particular hour to do a particular thing. And it turns out that then, on top of everything else that is going on, the characters then find out that the prophecy says you're meant to do X. And so they then have that burden of prophecy placed on them with everything else. I don't have anything to follow it up. Actually, I do. Uh, Adrian, what happens when you get a group of Prometheans and a group of Sin Eaters together? I don't know that they'd play all that well together, to be perfectly honest. Well, you get a motley crew. Oh, oh, oh no. Geez. Yep, the bad jokes are back. <laughs> All right, so <clears throat> I think this really proves that using the ideas from The Last Supper, you can apply them to any game, and you can get a really cool beginning to any chronicle. Certainly, and I think that one of the, uh, one of the things that The Last Supper gives you is a lot of tools around a very good idea that you can start off your game outside of that really basic introduction that I've seen a lot of people use that that mortal side of life is ignored and the exciting stuff only happens when you become a vampire or become a werewolf or whatever game that you're currently running so I think this gives you quite an exciting prelude to run great well thank you very much Adrian no problems at all. I just had one last point with Last Supper that occurred to me, and that is that if you do buy the original book or the PDF, there is a little bit of errata that didn't make it into the original printing. Some of the sires or the potential sires aren't fully statted out and you don't have all of their backstory. So if you want to get that errata, you're going to need to pick up a copy of the first printing of the Followers of Set clan book. It's the one with the female vampire with the red sunglasses on the front. And the last two pages of the clan book are the errata from Last Supper. Very nice. Is that also available on the old White Wolf website if you check like the Wayback Machine or something? I did take a look through there, and unfortunately, I only spent about five or ten minutes looking for it, so it's very possible that it's there, but I couldn't see it straight away. If we can locate it, we could probably put it in the show notes. All right, great. Well, Adrian, I'm not going to keep you. We're done with this segment, and I'll be back to do some finishing comments and all that. So thank you very much. No problems. This has been my pleasure, Mike. We interrupt your regularly scheduled podcast for this special announcement. If you like role-playing games, check out swingandamiss.net where... Damon, did you do your laundry? Oh god, this is not happening. Yes, I did. Don't come in. What, are you playing with yourself in there? No, I'm trying to record a promo. A porno? Not in my home, young man! No, a promo, an ad for my podcast. What's a podcast? It's a recording of our actual plays and gaming advice for people to download and listen to. Is that on the internet? Yes, Ma. Swingandamiss.net is a place for players and game masters to talk to each other across several gaming genres. Okay, well don't forget to take out the trash and find a nice girl. Swingandamiss.net. Don't let your mother catch you playing with yourself here.
All right, we're back. I'm glad we got to do this episode of Darker Days and get it done before the new year. I'd also like to thank Adrian for all his help. He's a real stand-up guy, and he's been very supportive of Darker Days, despite how busy he is with Mirage Arcana. Upcoming is Darker Days video episode 2. I just got my first shipment of print-on-demand books from DriveThruRPG, and we'll take a look at all three of them so that people can see exactly what they're getting. After that, I'd like to round out Requiem for a Masquerade with a third part to discuss what's in the Vampire Translation Guide and see if some of our predictions were correct. I'm not sure if we'll have Malleus again, but I'll try to get another special guest on board. Finally, Darker Days needs a few more permanent voices, so we're looking for one or two more hosts to support Mark and I. If you're interested, either Skype me, my username is lost.heretic, or leave a post on the episode 21 show notes on the WGPRN forums, and that's at wildgamesproductions.com. Also, at the end of this episode, I'm going to include a new intro. The previous one was lost in the transition between Vince and I, and I'd like some feedback on this one. Cool, so enjoy the new year, everyone. 2011 is the last year before the apocalypse, so you'd better party like a sin eater. Uh-huh.